When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, April 25th. Before we get to what I promise will be maybe our best show to date of the 2023 season, yes, I'm setting the expectations for it that high even before we've recorded the episode, before we get to today's conversation, I have to give a shout out to a man without whom this podcast would not be possible. It is the 21st birthday of my beloved youngest brother, Nicholas Gruskin. And while he will never end up listening to this mini break podcast, all of you listeners should know that this show would not exist without the love and support I constantly receive from the lovely Nicholas, who, because I'm extraordinarily mature, I, of course, called Nicholas. I love him dearly. I appreciate his passion for all that we do here at Crack Rackets, his support for all the stupid and silly things we've attempted over the years. So, Nicholas, happy birthday to you. Westoff, give me the sound effect. Give me a little birthday love. With all of that said, given it is his birthday, again, I'm not going to get him a real gift. I'm going to give him a podcast that I think even he would be willing to listen to. And again, an episode I am certain all of you listeners will enjoy. What we will be doing on today's conversation is taking a 30,000-foot view of where things stand on the ATP and WTA tours as all of us turn the calendar towards this week's upcoming action in Madrid. And if we're going to try and take on a task so monumental, there's only one guest I can think of to help join us here today, to help steer the ship. He's a man you know best as a returning champion of returning champions here on our Crack Racket show, a once-upon-a-time host of this mini break podcast, but of course, most notably host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show, a tennis channel contributor extraordinaire, host of the Cracked Rackets podcast, the Breakpoint Show. It is our dearest friend, Gil Gross. Gil, you're my birthday gift to my younger brother. How does that make you feel, my friend? How are you doing today? Yeah, I I hope he's in no condition to listen to this. (laughs) Big 21, baby. Uh, great to see you, Grusky. It's been a while. I like to leave you alone during college tennis season. I know you spend that time of year in a bunker somewhere in <laughs> Omaha or something like that. So uh, good to see you. No, Fort Dover is actually where we're hidden uh, throughout <laughs> the course of this year. I appreciate you allowing me to be in the solitary conditions I need to thoroughly enjoy this college tennis experience. But of course, I have enjoyed everything you've been doing with Monday Match Analysis, everything three a tennis show related. I do want to offer you the chance to plug what you guys have been up to because obviously there's been a lot of Djokovic news of late. There's been a lot of Rafa news of late. There's been a lot of matches to be analyzed. There's been a lot of predictions of yours to be roasted in the comments. Um, What's up with all things Gil Gross? 
Yeah. Uh, so Gil Gross, YouTube, Monday Match Analysis, uh, breaking down the men's final every week, mailbags once a week as well, where you leave your comments, I respond. Sometimes I talk for an hour, sometimes 30 minutes. It's a good time. Uh, post-match analysis for uh, Masters 1000s events and for uh, a very Djokovic and Nadal-centric experience while, while those two are still kicking. Three, a tennis show with myself, Joel Drucker, Hall of Fame um, historian at large, and Amy Lundy, who does fantastic work for Tennis Connected. Yeah. Tucker Carlson out at Fox yesterday, Don Lemon out at CNN. I thought for sure we were getting Amy out at three. I thought it was just going to be a media blitz <laughs> or like Joel stepping away because whatever it may be. Uh, so that was a little, you know, again, it wasn't the full media onslaught, but you guys are killing it. Always appreciate it. Thank you. If we were on cable, there would be cuts. Yeah. <laughs> The, the privileges of a YouTube show. Yeah, no no budgetary cuts necessary. No, I appreciate you updating us on all things you are doing, and I appreciate you joining me today because I do think Monte Carlo, Barcelona, bunch of other events in the books. You had Stuttgart. You've had Charleston. So we have seen just about every top player in the women's game as well play at least once or twice. I feel like now is a good time to take stock of where things stand entering uh, excuse me entering Madrid uh, of course a shout out as always to our friends at Tennis Point who allow us to cover the day-to-day -day action if you need anything in your lives tennis related turn to tennis-point.com today you'll find everything you're looking for at the best prices use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you by the way I guess we'll address this at the start were you offended that I just so easily suggested that a win 0-0 over you in the summer was not only possible, but like a legitimate goal to set as the framework for my summer experiments or dive back into the tennis world? Do whatever you got to do to motivate yourself, man. I'm happy for you. <laughs> you know, I've been making the switch recently. I've been playing with a Yonix racket. No way. Dude. No way. That thing looks horrible on you, man. I'm not nearly athletic enough for it. Let's address that from the start. That's a great call by you. That's actually a great <laughs> observation. One of the great observers of our time, Gil Gross. That's a great observation. Dude, that's why I don't use it. Yeah. I, I, I trust that it might be the best racket because everybody seems to want to play with it. But I just don't think I can pull it off. Are you telling me Jewish guys with thick brows aren't meant for athletic-looking rackets? Is that the supposition here? <laughs> we can't do the square frame. That's actually like, so fat. Like you're right. I I don't have a counter. I'd like to come in and say, I think my backhand can look the part if you ignore the body hitting the backhand and you just look at like the foundation and the result of the stroke itself. I do think I'm going to be able to beat you, Ono, by the end of the summer. Here's the thing. The, no way. I just buried that in quickly. Um, if my shoulder if, – if the key will be the serve because I played twice in three days last week and the second – oh, my God. My roommate played goes, dude, like that was really good tennis. I was like, I know, man. That was nuts. Here's the thing, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, and it's my advocacy for Yonex, who I'm really hoping is going to become a sponsor of this show in the near future. Their new rackets – the comparison I've made for them, apologies listeners for repeating myself, it's the perfect cookie. And you know how when you're chasing cookies in life, you're looking for a cookie that still has that perfect exterior that provides a little chew, 
that provides the structure of the cookie to keep it intact. It's not going to fall apart in your hand. You're not going to have goo all over you. It's still structurally a cookie. But when you bite into that bad boy, it's soft. It's luscious. It's melty. You're just going to make perfect contact with it on each and every bite. That's a Yonix racket. It has the framework to let you get outside of the ball, to make you feel like you have some grip and some grit and some tack on your swing. But boy, that thing swings freely. And it's like, it's what everyone thinks a Babolat is, but it's what a Babolat should be. It's a, it's a really <laughs> good racket. <laughs> Maybe I'll take it for a test drive. I think it's one of those once in a generations. Like, I'm not trying to exaggerate. I think there's a reason a lot of players are switching to it. I think... Babolat, the Aero, the Aero Pro or whatever. Like, that was mm-hmm. a once-in-a-generation racket, right? I think yeah. the K-Factor, the N-Code, like, those were once-in-a-generation rackets. The liquid metals, if you want to get into the heads, like, I think that was early on. That's maybe a little before your time, but that was a generational racket. Like, I think this is one of them. It could be. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed the migration uh, a lot of the pros going to going to Yonex and they've always had really good quality control. Like all of their products have always been really solid uh, as far as I'm concerned. But this seems to be the first time where it, it's so good that it's become pretty mainstream to to pick one up. Westoff, cut the clip. Let's send it to Yonex. I even pronounced it correctly. I know it's Yonix. It's not Yonix. It's a common misconception. But another common misconception is that our intros are abbreviated and that these mini breaks are condensed that's a misconception with the title we like to get off of tangents here at the start and we're already off on one i'm reining us back in here because foundationally fundamentally do i always enjoy having you on the show of course do i try not to pester you with too many asks for you to come on the show absolutely because when you're going to come on here i like for us to do something valuable i like for us to have a particularly relevant conversation and you my dear friend who once upon a time was beneath me in twitter followers and have subsequently just ended that race that's a goal that's gone to shreds um you sent a tweet that a lot of people had strong feelings towards over the course of the past weekend. I thought it was a fantastic tweet, and it's the reason I wanted to have you on the show today. And it's where we are going to start today's conversation. I will read the tweet for all of you listeners. It goes as follows. Who is the best male player in the world right now? You can have your opinions, but that question has gone decidedly unanswered through the first half of 2023. Hopefully... Rome or Roland Garros will be the first event of the year where Djokovic and Alcaraz both play. Now, that seems pretty standard to me. I (laughs) thought it was a legitimate question to ask. I thought it was an exceptional question to ask. Set the scene for the tweet. Talk to me about your thinking in regards to this question. My thinking was that throughout the Sunshine Double, Alcaraz was out here killing it. We were coming off of a January where Novak Djokovic won the Australian Open in dominant fashion and was killing it. And my thought was, wow, I really can't wait for Clay because these guys are going to get to go toe-to-toe, blow-for-blow, and we're going to get some really meaningful answers and a super fun storyline about who's the best. And Djokovic comes out as I expected, a little bit kind of out of shape in Monte Carlo, elbow issue, 
Next week, again, on par with what we've seen the last two years, didn't play well the following week. Remember, two years ago, he lost to Aslan Karatsev. Last year, he scraped through the draw, then lost to Rublev, six love in the third. So it's like, okay, Novak doesn't look good, but we're still on track for him to kind of get it together. Then he withdraws from Madrid. That changes everything. That changes a lot. And my first thought was, ugh, we're still not going to get this. We still don't have Novak and Carlitos together playing well at the same time, which is really just something that I want uh, so that we could engage in this conversation in earnest. So my tweet was a reaction to the Madrid withdrawal, and I did not think it was going to elicit the reactions that it did at all. Otherwise, I wouldn't have tweeted it because, quite frankly, it was not a fun experience. Borderline curmudgeon. Gil Gross, that's what we're going to have to define you as now, as a personality on tennis Twitter, just stirring the pot left and right. Yeah, like, there was some genuine vitriol. I was shocked because <laughs> uh, to your uh, to your framework of why you asked the question, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, Coming off of the first four months, because let's look 30,000-foot view here, and if you'd like to interject at any moment, please just raise your finger and say so. Who was the best player in the month of January? Unequivocally, Novak Djokovic, who beats the second-best player in the world, Sebi Korda, in a really fun final that first week of the season. Of course, then he goes on to win the Australian Open. He's undefeated through the month. There was no doubt hamstring tear, quad tear, whatever. I forget exactly what the precise injury was, but Novak Djokovic was the best player in the world in the month of January. Daniil Medvedev was the best player in the world in the month of February. And again, what provided some finality and some munition, I suppose, ammunition to this conversation was that Medvedev was playing so well in February, and he took that level to the sunshine swing. He makes the final of Indian Wells, and he matches up with the unstoppable force that is Carlos Alcaraz. And in that moment, you get to see the two players who were battling for the title of best player in the world play that match out. And Alcaraz cleans his clock. And certainly that was a definitive point, a data point for all of us to turn to, delivered by this course of the season. The thing is, why is there still a lack of clarity in this conversation? Because then Miami did happen, and Sinner beats Alcaraz, and then Medvedev beats Sinner. And now it's kind of an open question of like, yeah, Carlos gave Daniil Medvedev the business, but on a quicker hard court, I still want to see that matchup for Alcaraz, see if he will still have that success, because clearly Medvedev's level on hard courts is global. We didn't get to see Djokovic at either of those two events. The question of who is the best player in the world on hard courts, in my opinion, remained open. That mm -hmm. is why I think it's relevant coming into this clay court season, a clay court season that delivered an Andre Rublev Monte Carlo title, a definitive Carlos Alcaraz Barcelona title, but two Novak Djokovic losses between those two events as well. I think the question remains open and I apologize if that was too much detail in going into the background of this conversation, but I think that all of that is relevant as to why that is the number one question in tennis because you haven't seen all these guys playing at their best at the same event. No Alcaraz in Australia, no Djokovic in the Sunshine Swing. Fans will get very mad that I haven't said no Rafa on the clay thus far either, which absolutely matters. Mm -hmm. It's an open question. 
Right. Uh, and no, I mean, that's the detail. I'm glad you went into that detail. The analogy that I made on, on Monday Match Analysis was this. If this NBA? were a math. No, math. Okay. Uh, Ooh. School, a sp- Ooh. I needed to take it away from sports because I, okay. I think those analogies can be the most effective. If the season were a math exam, 100 questions, we're 40 questions in right now. Medvedev has answered all 40 questions. He's played the entire season. He's been healthy, unlike last year, which has been great. Djokovic has answered 20 questions. Alcaraz has answered 20 questions. But the questions that they've answered were the opposite 20. Novak decided to start at 40, work backwards, uh, or I should... (laughs) Yeah, let's say that. Uh, it should probably be the other way around. Sure. Alcaraz starts at zero and moves forwards. So they've answered 20 questions each, completely different questions. Medvedev has answered all 40. How the f*** are we supposed to tell who's the best at math? Well, I even go within this analogy, which I'm going to entertain just for the sake of our listeners to keep it coherent because that analogy could have been better. Could have left it on the drawing board. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. If there's 40 total questions, here's what I would say. Medvedev's answered 34 of them correctly. And, like, he's done the juicy part. He's got the six long-form answers still to go. Like, he hasn't addressed the, you know, I got to actually show my work on this question. Those are the majors, right? Like, that's the one he's got to go get still. Alcarez kind of started with the long-form question. He was like, no, here's my Indian Wells, flat, you know, formula. Same thing. Djokovic was like, no, here's my Australian Open resume. They got the hard shit out of the way easy. At the same time, you're right. None of it's been simultaneous. All of it's been answering different questions at different moments. And as such, we don't have a coherent picture from start to finish. We have these little windows of you were the best then. You were the best here. If you wanted to make an argument right now that Holgaruna is playing better on clay courts than anyone else on tour or at least as well as Alcaraz, I'll listen to that. Like, I don't think you can say with what we've seen from Djokovic to start and to your point, and you said this, and somehow this gets lost because people see the tweet and they don't listen to our work, but you have emphasized this point. We saw this from Djokovic the past two years, slow starts to his clay court seasons, looked fine up through set two and a half against Nadal in the Roland Garros quarterfinals last year. Beat Nadal the year prior on his way to winning the Roland Garros title in 2021, despite those slow starts. So it's not as though Djokovic has been eliminated from the idea of him being the best player in the world right now. But I do think it's worth mentioning, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. I test wise, there's no doubt. Like Carlos Alcaraz, again, I would hear Holger Runa in that conversation as well. They're best right now if they're playing as this well. Like, Djokovic will have to play well to beat them, and we need to see it. Yeah. So if you were if you were going to say, like, they have to play tomorrow, yeah. then the answer is pretty obvious. But I, I just don't think that's the best way to, to approach it. But you're right. Like, gun to my head, the answer to my question is Alcaraz. My point is that I don't think it's fair to Medvedev or to Novak to crown him. You know, I don't think it's fair to crown him given the the data. Um, and I don't really like calling it data, but, it, you know, it's really the tennis that we've seen. Um, you know, Daniil, 
do, do we want to go through kind of what upset each fan base? Please. This is, do I want to? This is why you're on the show. I mean, look, and it's it's not that I don't want to make it sound like like nobody was, you know, understanding of it. Plenty of people got what I was saying. But here, the, you know, those who I don't think did, this is where they were coming from. Daniil Medvedev fans were were pissed because he's number one in the race. And it's like, Gil, like we have a system to decide this. Can you just look at the rankings? Jesus Christ. Like that was Medvedev fans. <laughs> okay. Rafa fans were like, bro, how are you not mentioning Rafa Nadal right now? Yeah. He's Rafa Nadal. You and think I'm like, they're giving you the middle finger, but they're actually just counting the number of losses he's had at Roland Garros in the past decade. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And it's like, look, guys, this is about who's the best right now. And Nadal, it's been six months, well over six months mm -hmm. since he's played an elite level. Mm -hmm. Okay. Djokovic fans, they were pissed because of his body of work in the last year, the last two years, the last five years. And it's like, wait, how are we now? Uh, they, they actually get kind of mad usually whenever you uh, put Carlos Alcaraz on equal footing for Novak Djokovic. But we're talking about the future. We're talking about the next year. We're talking about 2023 where, yeah, they're on equal footing until proven otherwise. And so far, it hasn't been proven otherwise. So it's the body of work that got Djokovic fans upset and like, oh, now you're asking who's the best in the world. You weren't asking that in 2021. Yes, yes, I was. And it was obviously Novak Djokovic, and we were all saying that. But if you want to act like there's some kind of agenda and that when Novak is the best in the world that nobody wants to say it or acknowledge it, you can go ahead and act like that. But it's not the case. You know, it was the obvious answer to the question, and anyone was willing to acknowledge that. There you go. And then your Carlos Alcaraz fan is like, well, look, Djokovic just took two early <laughs> like, losses. Stop yelling at us. We didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> You're Carlos Alcaraz fan, and I think they were kind of more respectfully just making an argument for their guy, which I can totally appreciate. I even put in the tweet, you can have your opinions. But they were like, look, Novak just looked awful two tournaments in a row. Our guy has lost basically once when healthy. I still think Nori deserves a lot of credit for that win in Rio, but he's lost twice all year. He's like, what, 24 and two. He just looks phenomenal. And like, what do you want him to do, basically? What what more do you want him to do to be thought of as the best in the world right this moment? Uh, because it, it certainly looks like that. So that's why, like, I was able to make four fan bases annoyed in one tweet. Yeah, do you think any of them have a case? Like, should any of them be annoyed? Because I actually think that all of them, uh, maybe the Alcaraz fans, I, I thought, kind of had something there. I don't think any of the others do. Well, let the record show the rare Grand Slam, four fan bases angry at once <laughs> tweet. Like, come on. Round of applause, Westoff. That's good. impressive. Yeah, well done by you. Um, well summarized. To, to address all of their grievances quickly, I think Bedford fans have a reason to be upset. Like, he has been that good. You know, people aren't talking enough about alert. What is he? Like 20 – I'm looking at the number now. Daniil Medvedev, 31-4 and four to start his season. He's got 30 wins, and it's not May. That's historic. That's like you're on the pace to rip off a 70-80 win season, which just does not happen very frequently. Nadal fans, 
we're just upset. Everyone's upset Rafa's not healthy. So you get why they're upset. Djokovic fans, it's a Saturday. What a, you know, again, <laughs> I, I don't know what else to tell you. Um, Can I extend a quick olive branch to Medvedev fans? <laughs> is it in the form of a petition? Because that started a revolution. And so be mindful. Yes, of course. Let me olive branch. <laughs> I should have made it more clear that Medvedev is in the conversation here. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned Djokovic and Alcaraz in the tweet because they are the guys who have had incompleteness in their seasons. And that's why, you know, they're the relevant parties. But that also takes away Medvedev's ability to, to say, hey, I'm the best. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes away everybody's ability to say I'm the best. So Medvedev is in the conversation. I didn't say it in the tweet, but he is. I also think for so long... Djokovic, Nadal, Federer have just existed on a plane of their own. And yes, on the right weeks, the right times of the year, Murray, Wawrinka, they had been able to hit those upper echelons. 2015, Djokovic isn't walking through that door. You know, 2010, Nadal isn't walking through that door. And while their level is still unequivocally as good as anyone in the world. And I do think what Djokovic fans get upset with is that people like you and I will address the other interesting contenders and interesting players in the mix with the fundamental assumption that they're the ones who are challenging Novak Djokovic or Rafa for the title. Like, that's always our underlying assumption is, okay, those two plus who else? And I think what Djokovic fans would get upset with is that, well, why don't you spend more time talking about those two and while they're still contenders? And it's like, because... Two decades. Like, that's why. We've done it for two decades. They, you want to see the resumes, you got to go to Wikipedia to see w- what they've accomplished. It's that long. Um, I do just think now, when you look at the level, like, to your point, and this is the final fan base to address, the Akres fans have a claim to their guy at this point. Like, you mentioned the numbers overall for Carlos Alcaraz. They're absolutely laughable. He's 57-12 and 12 in his last 52 weeks. When you're winning over 80% of your matches over 50% of the time, that's the elite of the elites. Like, again, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, their primes were over 90. Sampras, Agassiz of the world lived in the 85 to 87 range with Lendl. You know, Edbergs and prime couriers, that's when you get to the 80%. That's what Alcaraz is doing right now at 19. That's why I always joke around not eliminated from the GOAT conversation yet. 23-2 and two in 2023. I asked David Kane this yesterday. I'm going to ask you as well. He has played a total of 64 matches in his career at the ATP level on clay courts. What's his record? Price is right rules. 64. Um, is he? How many wins? Yeah. Yeah, 55. So he's played. He's 52 and 12. 52 and 12. Okay. I was somewhat close. Very close. Within three wins. And again, <laughs> over 50. Like, he's 52 and 12. He is winning over 80% of his matches on this surface already in his career. By the way, for his career at the ATP level, 127 and 34. He's won 79% of his matches. He hasn't turned 20 yet. I promise Opta Ace is going to come out with the stat when he turns 20 and say that's like <laughs> the third best teenage win percentage behind like Rafa and maybe Borg I'm forgetting about. They have a claim. 
Yes, they have a claim. He's been yeah. world number one. He's won a slam. He just won Barcelona without dropping a set. And his best was just fundamentally better than a Stefano Tsitsipas, whose best on clay is really, really good. This is why, again, full circle here, why do I want to have the discussion? Because for the first time in forever, you can legitimately make an argument as an Alcaraz fan. You can legitimately make an argument as a Medvedev fan that, yes, maybe your best isn't definitively better than Novak Djokovic's, but through four months of 2023, it has been as good. Yeah, it's just a matter of giving Novak who, you know, has made it very well known. He wants to peak for slams. Yeah. He won the first major of the year. It's giving him that time and that benefit of the doubt that, I mean, he's clearly, clearly earned. And and that's why I, I tap the brakes. Now, If again, if they're playing next week, you have my answer. On clay, they're playing tomorrow, Carlos Alcaraz. Like, mm -hmm. that's the answer. Uh, but when I say, that's the other thing. When you say right now, like, who's the best right now? Uh, you do maybe need to specify, like, are we talking right now, right now? Or are we saying, like, at the next major? Sure. Exactly. Yeah. I agree. I And so right now, French Open, would you – oh, I mean, it's too early. But would you be picking Novak Djokovic, Carlos Alcaraz, or someone else to win it? What, are, are you saying – what are you asking? To win the title right now. At the French Open, who would you pick? Who are you comfortable today picking? I'm comfortable right now picking Carlos Alcaraz because I, I think, again, the, mid, the Madrid withdrawal poses a lot of questions mm -hmm. about what's going on with Novak. I don't even know why he withdrew because yeah. I'm not convinced it's the elbow. So right now it's just nothing but question marks. Nadal health, nothing but question marks. You know, I, I, don't, I don't even like to say who... I, you know, have in mind for majors before the draw comes out. I, I hate saying it, but right yeah. now I, I do think it, it's almost obvious enough with the question marks surrounding other people that it's not that hard to answer the question. Well, I think to your point, Carlos Alcaraz has shown me not only at the U.S. Open last year, but just the level we saw in Barcelona that with that pedigree at a slam, plus the level he's shown on clay, plus the success and track record on clay – he has the tools to win the French Open. Like, I agree. That is what makes this question fundamentally interesting. Is like, yes, we know Novak Djokovic is capable of winning a French Open. But I think we also both all believe Carlos Alcaraz, as constructed right now, is also capable of winning the French Open. And that's just what makes this conversation so interesting and why I think it's a legitimate question and why I couldn't agree with you more. The most anticipated match in all of tennis right now is when Alcaraz and Djokovic will face off against one another this season. It's the thing we all need to see happen. It's the data point we're all looking for. I know we got to see it last season, but it's a year later. You know, both of these guys, a year older, and again, in Alcaraz's sense, the older he gets, the better he's going to get right now. I Does that mean... I guess for Djokovic fans, here's the fundamental misunderstanding. Saying Alcaraz is capable of winning the French Open is not saying Novak Djokovic is not capable of winning the French Open. It's just that now there are so clearly multiple guys who are going to be able to do it. I'm not saying Djokovic is ducking Carlos Alcaraz in, in Madrid by any sense of the imagination. But I understand why he wouldn't want to show this form of himself against Alcaraz because the single most thing you can get against Novak Djokovic is confidence that you can actually beat him. 
And if Djokovic isn't 100% confident in his form right now, I understand why he would pull out of this event. You still have a couple more warm-ups to go, right? You still have Madrid. If he wants to play the week before the French Open, he can do that as well. I just think it is worth noting, yes, absolutely, Carlos Alcaraz has proven he is capable of winning the French Open, and that's what makes this whole conversation so interesting. Yeah, Rome, and and Rome is Novak's real tournament. You know, Madrid, yeah. Madrid, as as we, we, we might get to, I mean, the conditions are so different from RG. So it's not, it's not the worst idea, um, to, I guess if, if you want to run a training block instead, especially when you're Novak Djokovic and, and you're so good at taking full advantage of those kinds of training blocks, you, you kind of get it, you know, and I'm the guy beating the drum also that like, it's not like they play one time. We'll get one result. And we should have some, you know, outsized reactions to it about about what that tells us about the future. I'm I'm not in that kind of camp. And I was, you know, very much accused also of being like, oh, so like Dusan Lajevic is number one now because he beat Novak. It's like, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is when we see them play against each other, at least we can start to kind of build that storyline and have a chapter one here. Mm-hmm. I, there might be more chapters, but right now we just haven't even started to, to write the book. So so that I think is is the point. But yeah, you, you do, you make a good point about, about Djokovic potentially just not feeling like he's in good enough shape right now uh, to go out there and win Madrid. If you don't feel like you have a chance to win, why are you going to play? Statistically, Djokovic 17 and 3, Alcaraz 23 and 2, Djokovic holding 88.4% of the time. That's a top 10 number. Alcaraz holding 84.3% of the time. That's a top 20 number. Um, I think I said 88.4 for Djokovic. I apologize. I meant 88.7% of the time. You look at the return percentage. Again, Alcaraz has a similar lead. Alcaraz breaking a ridiculous 38.5% of the time to start this season. Djokovic a still very, very exceptional 30.6. That's a top 10 number. Five guys right now, top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, Djokovic, Holgaruna, who we're going to talk about in a second. Oh, wow. All the best players. Yeah, it, that's what I'm saying. It's like if the numbers say it and the eyes say it, maybe there are multiple really good players right now on the ATP yeah. Tour. And I, I do want to make one – I I want to make one uh, one tactical point, Final um, point about, about Alcaraz. On slow – okay, the, the most definitive loss he's had this year was center in Miami. And he just looked rushed the whole time. Sure. Like everything coming off of Sinner's racket was hard, fast, deep, took it early. And it just looked like Alcaraz had no time. On slow surfaces, Indian Wells, Barcelona this week, which affords you that extra time, that's when Carlitos has just looked on another planet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something to note as we go through this clay court season is, okay, if the way to beat Alcaraz is to rush him, like Yannick did in Miami, well, that is just so hard to do this time of year. It's going to get easier to do post Roland Garros. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I saw Pass try to press him on that backhand wing, just the depth Ankaraz was able to generate on the backhand side. He just has so much time on his hands on this surface, and it's just... Who's going to be capable of rushing him if even Tsitsipas really wasn't that successful? I mean, he did well, well enough, but like 
Who's going to have the ability to do that consistently? Well, not on the backhand. I mean, that's the big difference is that okay. Alcaraz goes to the Tsitsipas' backhand and then has all day. Because yeah, but if Tsitsipas doesn't want to go forehand to forehand with Alcaraz, who will? Well, it's not up to Tsitsipas. Like, Tsitsipas wants to go forehand to forehand, but Alcaraz is going to hammer the backhand yeah. whenever he can, okay. including on the on the serve, which, mm-hmm. which he did. And Sinner is hitting these really, you know, average 77, 78 mile per hour two-handed backhands deep in the court. And Tsitsipas is not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's leaving way too many backhands short. He's hitting the ball fundamentally slower. That he's was getting rushed issue. on that side. Yeah. And and that and it just looked like it was the opposite of the Miami match. It it's looked like what like I Alcaraz do to you. had all day. You don't rush me. Get out of here. No, but I pick on that backhand wing. My backhand's feeling so good compared to the shape it was in uh, when, when we play. played last. This is what I like to hear. No, sorry, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I do think, and this gets me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, and I mentioned it, five players top 20 in the world right now in both hold and break percentage. We've talked a lot about Medvedev, Djokovic, Alcaraz. You and I have done enough center content in the past that we don't have to address it here today. A guy we have not done a lot on is Holger Runa who yesterday with David Kane, I argued for the first time seeing his level, not just in Paris at the end of last year, but here on the clay these first two uh, weeks, just how he is on ice skates. And again, hopefully the injury is fine. He's going to be able to hit forehands a little bit more successfully this week in Rome, uh, in Madrid. I keep doing that. Sorry. Um, I mean... Does he have an eye-popping result from the hard-court stretch of this season? No, but with how well he started this clay court season, I mean, just how easy it looks and the totality of things he can do. I mentioned this with David yesterday. I think when you're looking at the skill traits, you know, if you're making the, the characteristics breakdown, Alcaraz's best tools are better than the things Hogaruna does best. But I think the totality of things Hogaruna can do is actually more broad than what Carlos Alcaraz can do. And watching Runa be so backhand reliant is I really think he should be more frequently, but he was forced to be against Botic, and he had so much success with that backhand wing. How fluid he is as a mover, how springy and electric the ball he actually generates off of his racket is, the drop shots, the volleys he can come up with. For the first time, I argued Hogaruna might not be eliminated from the greatest of all time discussion. Like, I saw the pathway for him to just, for it to all click. And I understand you feel the ups and downs of Hogaruna right now more than you do Carlos Alcaraz. Hogaruna feels more like a teenager, more like a unrefined product than Carlos Alcaraz at this point. And while that may be a burden to him in this exact moment, how do we not look at that as a long-term blessing? Like, the things to clean up are evident. And if all of us can see it, you know Team Runa can see it. Like, I think I'm really – and I might be late to the party, but I really do think I'm starting to drink the, oh, yeah, like, this guy is – I've already elevated him to Tier 1. It's unequivocal at this point, particularly on this surface. You hit the nail on the head. That's what's been hilarious about Holger Runa is – same thing in Monte Carlo and now in Munich. The finals actually really reminded me of each other. Uh-huh. In, in Now, 
it was reverse where Runa had this massive lead in the third set in Monte Carlo and ended up losing in Munich. Botic had the massive lead in the third set and uh, Holger ended up winning uh, fr- from behind. So the results were reversed, but you look at that Munich final, Runa gave von de Zanschkulp the second set. He, he gave it to him. He sent his racket to get re-gripped. I don't know why he didn't just do it himself. He sent his racket to get re-gripped and it wasn't coming back fast enough. So he totally tanked the set. He was upset and started to play a million miles per hour, taking zero time between points, trying to hit every ground stroke 100 miles per hour and not finding the court whatsoever. And it's like, all right, 6-1, Botic. And it's like, dude, you just, you're in a final here. You just gave away the second set because your racket didn't come back in time. Like if that's not a 19 year old thing, then I don't know what it is. Yeah, no, I mean, the sliced forehands, the bump lobs he was hitting, like that's some of the things he was doing to fight off. It was amazing. Like, you're absolutely right. I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt you. And so like, where is your perception with him in this moment? I mean, again, he has sustained his top 10 ranking. He has done the job he's been Mm -hmm. looking to do through the first third of this season. Where do you see him going from here? I mean, I'm. I think what he's done on the clay, the clay has really helped him. Yeah. I think utilize his defensive skills and his patience and his physicality. Where on the hard court, I feel like he was trying to, you know, maybe copy paste the game that he was playing indoors last fall, and it just looked way too aggressive. The balance wasn't right. He was missing much too much. The the shot selection was so over the top offensive that I I think it was really hurting him. And then as soon as he got on the clay, willing to drop back the court position, willing to play with more safety on the forehand. And it just, it helped him a ton. So I think the way he's playing right now is great. I think he's going to lose big matches uh, against great players this year more often than not, to be completely honest. But I think he's also going to be a top 10 player and he's so young, the trajectory is so good that that's a really, really great thing. I don't know that I'm with you. Like if we're going to go tail of the tape, Runa against Alcaraz, I do struggle to see exactly where Holger has a clear advantage if we're going skill for skill. You can you can maybe try to tackle that. That being said, I think it's totally unfair to compare Runa to Alcaraz necessarily. Now, I don't know, maybe Holger would be like, no, do compare me to Carlitos. Like, that's who I want to be. That's who I want to beat. I'm right there. But to me, the only way, the only way I get negative with Runa is if I compare him to Alcaraz. And that's where I start to be like, "Eh, I don't know if they're on the same level. Anything short of that, I'm so high on Holger Runa. Last two questions for you. What would Andre Rublev have to do to change your perception of him? Because he wins the title in Monte Carlo, finals last week. If yeah, he great wins, question. like if he wins Madrid, is that enough? Because I don't even know for me if it would be. Like, or are you like I'm? I'm so worried. I'm so locked in in our perception one and two at ATP Tour finals for the rest of his career. Like, which by the way is a hell of an accomplishment. It's not meant to be demeaning. And yet, like, coming off of that Monte Carlo run, everyone's like, oh, it's so cute. He finally won the title. 
And, you know, I don't think he's been elevated to another stature in terms of the more broad conversation. No, no, I agree. The thing is, we have such a large sample size with Andre. Nothing visually looks vastly different. I think the best argument that can be made that it's like, no, it's a different Rublev, like different guy, is that one, his coaching, his coaching is new. His coaching is different. He he's no longer with Fernando Vicente. Uh, so so maybe something changed there. The second argument is, well, mentally he's much, much better. And it's like, okay, I actually agree with that. I think he's gonna handle big matches now upstairs in the head well, where before he wasn't and he had no chance to win these big matches because not only are there technical stuff that is tough for him against the best in the world, but there was also mental stuff that was basically making him throw in a stinker every time it was a big match. Um, so that I think is behind him, but the technical stuff I don't think is behind him. He's not the fastest player. He doesn't defend that well. He doesn't volley very well. The backhand has been red hot, but it doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it seems like it can be broken down, especially defensively. Um, the second serve is kind of attackable. That's gotten a little better, but it's still not really there. I so, think the backhand has gotten better. You're right. It's been hot these last two weeks. But just to interject because I want to give you the final word on Rublev. Yeah. I think – you talk about two things. You say, I think he'll handle the big matches better. I think that's the whole thing a lot of us are waiting for is you got to see it to believe it. Yeah, he had a good week in Monte Carlo. He follows it up with another final. Let's see it again. Secondly, I actually think he has developed as a mover so much. And having followed him in the juniors and early in his career, that 2018 quarterfinal, you know, the forehand has always been what it is. But the movement has come along so much. And you're right. He's never going to be a comfortable volleyer. He's a much more willing volleyer than he was. And with that forehand, all you really got to do is make the first volley. And you'll put yourself in a position for success. The question – like, I agree with you. All of them have gotten better at the margins. But you haven't seen a dramatic improvement. Like, there's been no fundamental changing of the understanding of how we perceive Andre Rublev's game. And – You know, that's question one. Question two is, again, it's the third straight week. It's like, can he do it three weeks, four weeks in a row? And if he can, I do think then if you do it across Monte Carlo, make a 250 final, and then come do it in Madrid as well, now I'll at least entertain the idea. Yeah, that said, I feel like he's struggled. If I'm not mistaken, he's struggled at Madrid. Yeah. The conditions are are weird, so if you if you're a guy who struggles at Madrid, I don't really hold it against you much. Um, you know, altitude clay is altitude clay, but also there's a fatigue factor. So Andre can lose early in Madrid. I wouldn't put too much weight into that. Then I'm kind of curious about Rome, and then of course I'm curious about about Roland Garros. He can, you know, he he can he can change minds. Like obviously any player can, but. Rublev has been pretty much a similar guy for, you know, three, four years now. He's not someone like Sinner who's like 21 or or anyone. I don't know why I name drop Sinner. Anyone who's like 21 or 20 where you're like, oh, look at that number. He's probably going to get a lot better. He's not there anymore. So I think the title in Monte Carlo was a guy who's been knocking on the door for a very long time. He's made two Masters 1000s finals. He was in the year-end championship semifinal. And what happened? 
the circumstances were right. He had a, you know, he conquered some mental demons and he won the thing. That's how I see that title. I don't see that title as, oh, this guy unlocked something and now he's at a, a new tier of, of player. Like now he's vaulted into a new category. It's not how I see that title. We're all really, really happy that he got the title, but more than anything, it was just, he wasn't playing Djokovic on a hard court, Medvedev on a hard court. He wasn't playing Nadal on clay, uh, even like a Tsitsipas on clay in this, you know, in this final. He was playing someone who has his flaws in Holger Runa. Those flaws came out in the match, but more importantly, Rublev was able to play his very best tennis because he stayed calm and he handled adversity really well. And that has not been easy for him to do. He so deserves the title because of the work he's been able to do to correct those issues. But I still think he could run into problems down the road if we're talking about, oh, is Andre Rublev going to contend for Masters 1000s and majors every single time? I don't think so. Yeah, perfectly put. So with that said, last question for you. Ega versus the field. How big's the delta? Because David Kane and I got in a little bit of trouble, perhaps, <laughs> for discussing this yesterday. The delta in serving friendly conditions is not large, maybe yeah. even nothing. Rybakina, Sabalenka, give me quick, you know, server-friendly conditions. I don't know who's going to win that match. Well, I think Stuttgart proved that there is still at least some sort of delta because okay, Sabalenka because- served well. And Iga still Pliskova served well, and Iga yeah. still won both of those matches. And so I think. So sorry, carry on. No, I mean the the, the question is just like okay, how server friendly is Stuttgart? You also have the clay court movement in play where where Iga is just levels above. It's crazy. Everyone else. Like what would if you attempted her sliding backhand? What happens <laughs> to your hip? It's not it's not my hip that I'm concerned about. It's like the it's like the fall on my face factor. <laughs> it's it's my ability to actually hit a competent backhand while sliding. Like I also that. love like how well she rolls the ball in the short angle forehand. Just how fluid she is in her corners. She is the best player at sliding into her shots in the women's game. By far. And yeah, and, well, here's the thing. Coco's really good at it. And that there's even a delta still between Iga and Coco just speaks to just how ridiculous it is for Iga. Yeah, well said. So I agree with you that Stuttgart, where Sabalenka has just been awesome in her career, right? I mean, what's what is it? Makes the final every time. Uh, she's like, <laughs> she's like, what if we did an indoor clay major? Like, just just like think about it. Yeah. So it's her player uh, the- council platform. So yeah, in, in that respect, like it's true that that's a that's kind of like that's a big win for Iga. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but I still think quick hard court Australian Open, U.S. Open, Wimbledon. I don't know that there's much of a delta at all on clay. Delta is significant in the sense where it's very very obvious uh, who that. Again, let's go to the same question: best in the world? Question? Yeah. No, it's not hard. Not hard to answer. We we have everything we need to make that determination. Where heading into Roland Garros, Iga Swiatek is your leader in the clubhouse. Yeah, and I do think it's fair to say if Sabalenka or Rabakina play their best, they have proven they can beat Iga on any given day. 
But boy, do you have to see it to believe it on a clay court. And and by the way, I think on clay, Sabalenka more so clear clear edge over Rybakina. The movement, it's just different. Like Sabalenka Correct. is comfortable sliding into her backhand. By the way, I was just thinking about it. If Sabalenka like makes a player council push and she's trying to, you know, again, the platform is more indoor clay court events. Like how quickly does Nicolas Yari be like, oh, I'm in on that. Like I can get <laughs> behind that. Like for sure. Like that's two. Who's third on that list? Who's like the secretary of things or who's who's doing the fundraising for that group? Hmm. Pagula's like, I'll fundraise. What else do I have to do? Yeah. B- Benchich probably. Oh, I don't know. Oh, right? I mean, she likes that idea. She's that's a great that's <laughs> a great site by you. Samsonova's like, yeah. I, I know I was bad this year, but counsel me. And, and like, Chin Wen's like, <laughs> never mind. I was going to make a joke, but I'm not going to make the Chin Wen joke. Um, but Chin Wen would also be in favor. Um, no, I mean, she'll be like, well, the WTA is opening back up to China money. So are, is this group advocating for it as well? Um, not that bad of a joke. But I was like, is it worth it? It was worth it in the end. Leave it in. Um, yeah, that's my indoor clay caucus. Do we need more green clay? Uh, and you love no. the indoor clay. It's such a weird take by you. Anyway, no, we don't need we don't, to get into don't it. Don't need more green clay. No, wh- imagine Medvedev on indoor clay. Like, just what would it look like? I'm fascinated. I just don't, I just don't need it. I don't need it. I, I don't want to talk like, about it, but I don't need it. Sort of like someone who lives in California now. So we're we're wrapping up, right? Can I just yeah, the final? I was going to say here it is. We are wrapping yeah. up. Are, are you sure so, you don't want to do more on the indoor clay caucus? <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm I'm glad I'm glad we made a podcast um not entirely out of out tweet? of the tweet but <laughs> no but I'm glad we did it because for me and I'm you know I'm being completely candid with you like I'm so sick of this on Twitter and I I don't like it I don't want it because I I have a, a weakness where I, when people talk to me on Twitter I'm not really able to ignore them like I always respond and it takes up so much mental energy and so much time. And especially when they're just not understanding, like they're just, they're not being thoughtful about, about the point and they're misconstruing it and they're responding and they're straw manning it. I just can't ignore it. And it ends up being, you know, like a 48 hour thing where I'm just not enjoying myself at all on that, on that app. Um, and it just makes me want to tweet less and I feel like it's not worth it. So I, I don't know, like two things made it, made it better. I got a DM that was agreeing with me from uh, a former player. Uh, I'll say former player works at tennis channel. That's what I'll say. Okay, right. Sure. And that made me feel better. And, and this made me feel better. Are you able to talk me off the ledge here at all though? Because like, for me, it's like, for me, it's like, that tweet, it feels unworth it to me. Well, that's what made your decision to pay for Twitter Blue that much more surprising. <laughs> like that, was, that was a real shock uh, because you are not. No, I mean, this is why you have the following you do because you do take the time to engage with everyone. If I see someone, my fundamental weakness is if someone makes a good point as opposed to engaging with it, I'll just like it. I'll be like, yeah, that's a pretty good point. Like, shout well, out to you I, for making the good point. Um, I will too. What about if they make a bad point? Like, what oh, if you say those something? Are, I like turning people. I love the critic. You know, again, I take the challenge. You know I like mess around. If someone's I know. particularly venomous, like, 
then I don't engage. I don't know. I just that that's my key is like I guess I'll leave some of those. The difference is like today again because the Iga fan base was not particularly happy with David's framing of her loss at Indian Wells to Rabakina. And not to relitigate this, I think David speak for himself. He was not insinuating she was faking her injury. She was in, he was insinuating that Rabakina may have won that match regardless of the injury. Um, not that the injury wasn't a factor, but that Rabakina's best was still good enough to beat that. And I think that point was misunderstood. Um, it is frustrating because you don't want to see that perception. Because to your point, this is the barbershop conversation. Like tennis wants to say, what are the things fans are talking about? You're talking about with your friends who's the best right now. And mm-hmm. any casual fan is talking about, yeah, I think Alcaraz could beat Djokovic. No, no way, dude. Like, are you kidding? It's Novak. And you're like, no, man. Like, have you seen that Carlos forehand? And we try to do that in the intelligent way here on this show. It's a little harder to do that with 140 characters versus – 56 minutes now here on this show. I why I say don't don't avoid it is because passion is I always that's always my spin is why I don't let it get to me is because fundamentally you are passionate about the same thing that I am and that's why I like to engage with the particularly venomous ones cuz I'm like I like that you feel this upset. Like I'm <laughs> flattered, man, that like this pissed you off this much because it means you care. And that's all we're ever asking for in our jobs is like care because this sport's really fun when everyone cares. And Venom sucks, but again, that's like what what but, I, what joke look, do you think I haven't heard? I just want them to get it is the is the thing. And I feel like I put tweets out there and people don't get it. And they're not listening that's, to the show. Well, but but that's the thing. I, I never feel this way on YouTube. And I, I know YouTube comments get, get a bad rap. 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 Yeah. Um, they are, in my experience, a hundred times better than Twitter. A hundred times more thoughtful, more understanding, more, more nuanced. Like, I guess the best example ever and probably the most frustrated I've, I've ever been uh, with Twitter is like I complimented Alcaraz's physicality and it became like a... Uh, Gil is insinuating that he is juicing uh, on PEDs, steroids, right? That's probably the worst it's ever been. But that's what makes me mad. It's like, can all I ask, like, you can get upset at my opinion or disagree, but please don't make up shit that I'm not saying. Can you just get it? And that's my biggest issue with Twitter that makes it so frustrating is how many people don't get it. My most frustrating thing from Twitter, Westoff, quack out every word of this. Yeah. Anyways, that got quacked out. So no one knows my frustration. They're like, what shoe was on the other foot? Um, That shoe, Gil. You know the shoe that was on the (laughs) other foot. Um, Anyways, Monday Match Analysis, three a tennis show. They're rocking and rolling. Any final thoughts before we roll? I know. It's been uh, very fun as always. Uh, Looking forward to ramping it back up. I appreciate it. Yes, as well. I'm looking forward to getting back out there. I'm looking forward to getting on the tennis court. We're, do we film it? Like, do people want to watch? What's the number? Hell of yeah. Re- what's the number of retweets? Um, Zero, because Dalton will say, just do it. <laughs> on YouTube, I can guarantee you. Guarantee. So I'm going to, you know, it's 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 low. Um, okay. I guarantee you 5K. I just want to go after. Oh. So I'm trying to think how many people watch the Club Tennis Nationals video. I'll have to go look, see if we can up that. <laughs> There's a guy. Is his name Winston 
what's his name? Winston something who plays on on YouTube videos. Like he's like plays yeah. people. There's a lot. It's a big market. Honestly, it's yeah. much more popular than than anything that I do or any of the, you know, any of us commentators pundits yeah. do. Those the channels where like they're, you're playing tennis, um, they're bigger. Yeah. No. So you want to know how to actually piss me off? My buddy Kyle, whom again double, so he quick context just because this is relevant he played doubles his sophomore and junior year with my older brother they won state titles we played together my senior year we did not win together I blame him it was his fault we'll get to that another time we then played club tennis together in college and like again I've known him since I was like eight like his dad almost ran over my foot once with their car um that's a story for another time but he was texting in our group chat of club tennis players who we still chat with, and he was like, have you guys been watching Winston Dew's content? And I was like, dog, I make content. Like, come on. Like, I have never once been like, oh, great pod, Gruskin, and you're texting me about Winston? Like, you want to know how to piss me off? That's how to do it. It's to, <laughs> yeah, bring up other people's content. Um, not that I'm arrogant or anything or narcissistic. Yeah, I don't know. I have no, I have no follow up or point to that point. I just want you yeah. to know that that's how you get me upset. Hey, I mean, it. I'll talk you off the ledge. Then it's a <laughs> yeah. different lane, man. Like <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't compare myself to like anyone who's saying Should what rackets to buy, what rackets to buy, or strings and grips and shoes. Like they, they also a lot of those channels do do better than me. And it's yeah. like, well, look, I guess just more people <laughs> want that. You know, like, <laughs> I, I just <laughs> do we pivot? Like, that's what I'm saying. We'll see what the numbers do. People are. I just want the feedback on my forehand because I've been looking for it. I like I hit twice this past week at home and I was playing very well. But and the forehand was better because I was like, dude, can we just do like 20 minutes cross court forehands? Like not to be an <laughs> but I just like I really need to work on this. And he's like, yeah, dude, of course. No problems. And. It's just a disaster. It's just like I'm thinking so much, and I just hate – I hate thinking because when you're thinking, you're not playing. Yeah, truer words have never yeah. been spoken. So that's where – some philosophical thoughts here to end yeah. today's Mini Break podcast. But with all of that said, a massive thank you as always to Gil Gross. A shout-out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, editing all of our content. Nothing David Kane enjoys more in this world than stealing that line from me. And he always goes, can I say what type of an editing job it was? And I was like, yes, <laughs> you, of course you can. Uh, so shout-out to Westoff. Shout-out to Tennis Point, tennis-point.com, the promo code is CR15 with all that said for the fantastic Gil Gross, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell our listeners? That's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. Thanks, Grusky.